0: everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Rafia Zafar about her 2019 book, Recipes for Respect, African-American Meals and Meaning, from the University of Georgia Press. It's part of the Southern Foodways Alliance Studies in Culture, People, and Place series. Rafia Zoffer is professor of English, African and African American Studies, and American Culture Studies at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Rafia writes about the intersection of food, authorship, and American identities, 19th century black writers, and the Harlem Renaissance. She's the faculty director of the Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Program. Rafia, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. I'm delighted to be
0: on. Thanks. I'm really excited to be talking to you today. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, uh, so I have a lot that we want to discuss. We have common interests in cookbooks, not just as archives for historical information about how people eat, but also as literary and artistic and culture-making documents. So in this book, you're interested in food as a field of action, which I'm going to I'm going to get you to talk about in a moment. Um, but your primary object of analysis are cookbooks. So what is it that drew you to the study of cookbooks after beginning your research in more traditional literary genres? Um, so maybe tell us a little bit about the arc of your research agenda.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, and I, um, started grad school. I was already uh, a grown up. I'd worked in book publishing for six years. Um, and before, um, I worked in book publishing, I was, you know, your typical undergraduate, and I grew up in a home where my mother was not a good cook at all. So I can't say, oh, I learned about cooking at my mother's knee. Um, My mother had lots of cookbooks. I don't even know whether, I think my mother had two cookbooks. One of which was um, her mother's, Um, I think it was called the American Woman's Cookbook, I still have it at home, and maybe Betty Crocker. She didn't have the, anything as fancy as the joy of cooking. My father's mother, um, whose own family members allegedly included two older sisters who ran or even owned a cafe in Atlantic City um, called the Timo Sisters Cafe or something to that effect. But um, I didn't grow up with cooks. I didn't grow up with people who collected cookbooks. I got interested in cookbooks after... Um, I worked in publishing, and I thought I was going to go to grad school. And I was very interested in the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but in, en route to that, I was working in a store, which is a well-known store now, called Dean and DeLuca. But then it was called the Cheese Store. And I just started learning about different kinds of foods. That food was more varied, learning more about different sort of cultural groups, command of or claim to certain kinds of foods. And by the time I got to grad school, I was putting together those two things in my mind, what I had learned as a working person about, quote unquote, gourmet food and specialty food and my interests in black cultural life.
0: So what do you think is the relationship between cookbooks and like novels or other objects of scholarly study in literature?
1: Well, so many people have said they read cookbooks like novel. I don't even think you could get quotes from all of them, but I know Janice Langone, who's a, now the emeritus uh, curator of the, of the uh, Clements Library and their fabulous cookbook co- collection at the University of Michigan, has said this. Um, I'm, t- I think, oh, I, you know, it's probably a long list of those of us who've written about cookbooks who say, we read cookbooks like novels, because though we can think today of a standard cookbook, which has, um, the orientation clause. I mean, I know about sort of the linguistic stuff of recipes from Colleen Cotter's work on it. Um, they they, there's an orientation clause that tells you what's going to go on or what's happened or what the outcome will be. There'll be a list of ingredients, and then there'll be a paragraph with instructions, you know, break 12 eggs, you know, put them in this, put them in that, you know, stir them, bake them, fry them, whatever. Um, what, um, you learn when you read cookbooks, when you start reading a lot of cookbooks, um, more recently, um, it's because now it's a kind of memoir, um, that cookbooks contain more than instructions for replicating a particular dish or a meal. And in my research, um, as a grad student in 19th century African American texts, I found, um, in my. Readings: A couple of what I would call hospitality books that had recipes authored by black men in the early part of the 19th century uh, by um, Robert Roberts and Tunis Campbell. And then later in the 19th century, works by um, uh, Ma- uh, Melinda Russell and um, Abby Fisher in the mid to late 19th century. And seeing that not all, but a lot of them have instructions. They have actually recipes, if not recipes for meals, but recipes for life, recipes for how one interacts with whites and or employers, recipes for how one becomes socially um, apt, recipes for how one can become an entrepreneur. So I got very interested in these these other kinds of Recipes, the kind, the, nar- the narrational parts of cookbooks. I mean, today, I mean, one of the arguments, um, little arguments I make is that in some ways, 19th century or early 20th century works like um, someone like uh, Rufus Estes um, or even Melinda Russell, who appended slave narratives or slave narratives of, of a relative to their cookbooks are actually... Um, demonstrating that the cookbook with memoir goes back way beyond someone like Ruth Reichel or Alice B. Toklas or M.F.K. Fisher, that this is a kind of a a subgenre of what we would think of the straight-up cookbook. And in fact, the Library of Congress changed its classification of cookbooks. I'm trying to remember 10 or 15 years ago, um, but they're now also considered a literary genre.
0: Yeah, there's a, that, that all seems right to me. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about the idea of food as a field of action. That's the subtitle of your introduction and a key premise of the book. Uh, so maybe define for our listeners what you mean by that term uh, and how does it form the basis of the argument in the book?
1: Yeah, the food, I mean, I was. I recommend highly reading um, the anthropologist Mary Douglas. Um, If you want to learn a lot about food and why people think about food or respond to food um, from a vantage point of an anthropologist who's thinking about what do we do with food that is as a field of action. And among other things, she's written about food as taboo, right? What you can eat, what you can't eat, what's good to eat, why eschewing or, um, wanting certain kinds of food tells people what group you belong to, and also how withholding food from people is a way of you know, inscribing a boundary. And we see this very, very clearly, This the idea of food is a, a field of action. Um, over, um, We see it in lunch counters. The lunch counters, I write about Ann Moody's coming of age in Mississippi and Anne Moody's is the iconic face we see in so many U.S. history books as she's sitting there on the, at the counter of a, a Woolworth, um, after having, with her friends, politely requesting that they be served and having all sorts of food and insults and worse dumped on her, being physically attacked for something as simple as just asking for, you know, a grilled cheese sandwich and a Coke. So it's food is a field of action then, or we can say, Woolworths diner food is a field of action in that some people want to keep it from other people. So the food itself becomes a marker in this case of of citizenship, and a number of people have written about it. Mark Weiner has written a nice article about it. How essentially the denial of Coca Cola, right, which is a, a real American um, symbol, right? We see in the, the Coca Cola bottle, the Coca Cola bottle lettering and different alphabets, you know, whether it's um, English or whether it's in Arabic, it's a sign of the United States. So, by denying African Americans the right to have a Coca Cola and a grilled cheese sandwich, is white supremacists saying, You do not deserve to be Americans. We're not going to let you become Americans or function as Americans. And one easy way to do that is to deny you something that supposedly anyone in the United States can have.
0: Yeah. So as the food itself is kind of a field of action, then the cookbook too seems to be a place where subversive messages can be kind of put across. Um, So what are some of the subversive messages that you talk about in the book? How are these cookbooks enacting resistance or um, offering recipes for respect? That's the title of the book. So uh, what does that phrase mean to you? Well, a recipe for
1: respect. Again, to think back on the sort of the narrative portions of some of the ta- well, think particularly of cookbooks, but I, I see it in other ways. But when um, someone like Robert Roberts or Tunis Campbell um, addresses um, either, you know, we assume they're fictional, but maybe not. Maybe these are real young people, and it's an avuncular um, tone where he's um, where Roberts is telling these two young people, two young men in male names, that they need to do such and such um, to have a good job, to be respected, to feel respected. You know, what you can and can do when you're working in service. And then by following his um, injunctions, right, and his suggestions, this allows African-Americans to secure employment um, steady employment and respectable employment, right? You're not doing more than ditch digging, right? If you think about it, there were very limited economic options, career options for African Americans until actually, when you think about it, pretty darn recently. So a position where you were indoors, where you could be nicely dressed, um, not out there, you know, chopping cotton or digging ditches. This was, um, a better job, um, But there was a job that one could hold while also guarding one's self-respect. And so these are sort of these, not quite between the lines, but they're almost prefaces to the recipes or the instructions for running a household that Roberts offers.
0: So the book contains seven chapters, um, and they cover the earliest formally published African-American authored hospitality books of the 1820s to Edna Lewis's uh, *Taste of Country Cooking* from the 1970s, um, and a lot of other things in between. Uh, each chapter examines a set of related texts that are in conversation with one another and with the historical moment of their publication. So, the the first chapter uh, I found surprising, I think, for uncovering those earliest um, recipe or manuals with recipes were published by men and before the Civil War, and that's kind of surprising, I think, to to probably a lot of people. Um, so maybe describe those hospitality books. You've mentioned them a little bit already, but what's in them? Who's the audience and what kind of makes them special um, apart from cookbooks that we might expect?
1: Yeah. Well, as I said, they're hospitality books. So Roberts, what Robert Roberts was, uh, uh. I don't know whether he. we would call him a free black. He's He was a free black. He may have been born in in slavery in South Carolina. It's likely. Tunis Campbell was born free in New Jersey. Um, Roberts' book came out in the 1820s. Campbell's in the 1840s. Um, Campbell was the manager of a hotel in downtown Manhattan. Roberts was the butler for Governor Gore of Massachusetts. So they were both men who were in positions of... um, Great responsibility, as well as um, public figures. Right, if you're running a hotel, you're going to be in the public. If you're running a governor's household, of course, as the butler, of course, you're going to be on, on in that sense, on stage a lot of the time. Now, Roberts and and Campbell are interesting because they were at the same time. You would think that these are men who are. I don't know, some people might say toadies because they're working in service. They are also both abolitionists. They both have um, left a trail of abolitionist writings and acti- activities. Um, uh, Campbell, after the Civil War ended, um, became a one of the first elected officials in Georgia. So, these are men, and I think this is true of women as well in the 19th century people of African descent, is one of the, the strategies and I guess one of the um, the qualities that one needed was to be able to toggle back and forth between being sort of this consummate, um, I don't know, person of all trades for, in a white establishment, as well as someone who was proud of who they were and someone who was advocating for the rights of their fellow African-Americans. And the two of them did both things quite well. Um, What's interesting is that they both were men. Yeah. And I think part of that has to do with uh, the differing rates of literacy as um, a man would be more likely, and this is true with whites, than um, women to be literate, as well as um, just the difference between what you we know, they used to call this, the sort of the spheres, the gender spheres in the 19th century, where men were seen as the people who would engage in the public sphere and women's sphere was the private one. Um, so that might be one of the reasons we see these earliest books written by men. Uh, but it's one of the reasons, but maybe not all of the reasons. Now that they wrote cookbooks um, or hospitality books, I see as a way of them leveraging their knowledge about how to run a household, along with gaining the status of an author, which would gain them both a stat- increased status, right, social status, as well as f- funds. It's said, and I'd have to look for it. I can't find it right now. Um, Robert Roberts, in fact, his guide to running the, you know, the consummately well-run household was in the library of, a, of one of the Confederate Army generals. And this is, I found particularly interesting with both of them, that at the same time, mainstream United States believed in the inferiority, if not even the dirtiness of African Americans the sort of the uncivilizedness of African Americans. You have two, you know, well-regarded hospitality books that were written by black people, telling white people how to run an elegant household, how in other how in other words, how to be bourgeois, how to be upper class. And you know, the paradox is, is it was black folks who were telling white folks how to do this, and you can perhaps think. That's because African-Americans have long said that it was important for our community to know the other community very well, because quite literally, um, your life depended on your knowing more about them than they knew about you.
0: The second chapter looks at the connections between slave narratives and postbellum recipe collections. You make a case that these two genres are closely linked with the recipe collection earning authority based on the authority of that earlier genre. So what do you see as the literary links between these two genres?
1: Well, I think, well, the, the authority thing um, it has a lot to do with, I think, um, the Uncle Tom's cabin. I'll just get it right out there. Right. This is a novel written in 1852 that became the first million copy seller after the, the Bible. Um, and it's two of the figures at the heart of the, the, um, narrative, um, were two, are two black women cooks Aunt Chloe, who, I mean, I say aunt, that's how, you know, they were rendered in the, in the text, uh, Chloe, who was the wife of uncle Tom and, um, Dina, uh, I'm going blanking on this. I think it's Dinah. Um, no, it's not Dinah. Chloe and it's going right out of my head. But they're two, they're two chefs. Um, one of whom is um, seen. Actually, both of them are seen as these consummate, um, in, I'll say, intellects, geniuses, unlettered geniuses of the kitchen who are not described as being literate by any chance, um, but they are described as having this, and this is something that has gone, come down to us to the present day, that there is something about being a black woman that fits you for being a chef, that you don't have to do anything. It's a priori knowledge. Somehow, magically, you get a black woman in the kitchen, Give her some ingredients and some incredible meal is going to appear. This you see in Uncle Tom's cabin with these two chefs. In fact, Chloe even says at one point, jokingly, jokingly to the her white putative owner, it's like, well, get out of, you know, she sort of shoots her out of the kitchen and says, well, just look at my hands. Look at your hands. They're so delicate and white. Look at my great big, you know, a st- I think she uses a word, something like stumping or stumpy hands. You can tell my hands were made for making pie crust and yours. Well, you know, they're made for sitting in the parlor, perhaps. That's not exactly what she says. But this whole notion is that black people were fitted by nature for service, not for intellectual endeavors. And they didn't need to be taught these things. Somehow it was just going to happen. So with Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, very four and then the be- became, as I said, a million copy seller. You had many of the Southern apologists for slavery writing their own kind of contra novels, again with this image of an African-American woman slave creating these amazing things in the kitchen. Um, essentially. This is the stereotype against which African-Americans have to deal with for the next, well, it's not quite 200 years yet, but it's for a very, very long time. So I'm interested, um, I got very interested in looking at these slave narratives, for example, um, the, the ones that preface cookbooks, because they're a way essentially of saying, I really know how to cook because we know know, because the the reader of the the author of the text knows the reader that your mainstream white American reader already associates African Americans with being culinary geniuses. So by putting that at the front of the book, they're kind of underscoring it, saying, oh, yeah, this person. Yeah, this person was a slave or their family were slaves. They'll know how to cook.
0: Yeah, you ask a really important question in that chapter that I'm wrestling with myself, and I'm quoting here. You say, uh, "Combining a cookbook with a slave narrative uh, offers the implied audience a curious set of choices. Does one read to learn how to make ginger snaps, or does one read to learn of injustice overcome and a bright future ahead of darkness? Can one book do both?" Um, so, talk a little bit more about the significance of that question, and if you have um an answer for it maybe
1: well i don't know whether i have an answer for it um uh, i mean because this is all speculative right i wish i could go back and interview these some of these writers but i think it's i think it's not um n- not um a mistake that african americans saw entrepreneurship as a way up um i mean booker t Wa- washington is kind of infamous for promoting vocational education, uh, because he thought financial stability and success would lead to civil rights rather than the other way around, right? And that you did not need a you know a Harvard education like W.E.B. Du Bois to be successful in the world. Um, and they you know in truth, that kind of um, education, even in the South, even in an HBCU, was going to be very difficult for any African American uh, for any number of reasons, not just financial. So um, becoming a chef and then perhaps a caterer like Abby Fisher or uh, a Pullman chef and personal chef like Rufus Estes, who publishes um, Good Things to Eat by Rufus, is a way of use in some ways using that stereotype you know black people really know how to cook with their business skills and publication to leverage access so it would maybe a different social sphere but also day also maybe uh, additional income right and status if you're a cook um that you know in a house that's one thing but if you're a cook in a house but you're also publishing your recipes then you're not just a cook. Then people might think of you as a chef as well as an author. So there are a couple things going on when people decide they're going to publish a book. Um, Publishing books um, was not quite the same way. Also, people published books with printers. This was true with whites as well as blacks. So that um, one of the strategies for um, Melinda Russell published her cookbook um, to help secure the livelihood of herself, but also her child, which was the same strategy that Harriet Wilson, who wrote an autobiographical novel or a fictional autobiography, um, at the very end of the, toward the end of the civil, around the start of the civil war, um, also mid 19th century. Um, and she and, um, Melinda Russell say the same thing, that they're writing these books. They're putting these books before the public public in the, um, hopes that this will gain them financial stability that will allow them to raise their child.
0: Yeah. So in the the next chapter, you focus on George Washington Carver, uh, not just as a figure in food science, which is how I think most people think of him, uh, but as a person who cooked for a living and as a writer of recipes. Um, So where are those recipes being published? Who is the audience for those?
1: yeah well carver you know Carver is a and actually his graduate degree is in mycology. He was a fungi specialist, right We always associate him with peanuts, but he's more than peanuts. He started out um at Iowa state as in grad- in grad school and actually turned down an offer to join the faculty of Iowa State to go to Tuskegee because he felt that he needed to help his people. He thought that was more important um the, the recipes, which, you know, I'm not, it's not clear, you know, cookbooks in the 19th century and the 20th century, if not even the 21st century, often share recipes. It doesn't mean that um, they asked for permission, but certain things circulated, like uh, scripture cake um, is a recipe that will turn up in any number of cookbooks. But who invented scripture cake, right? They're not, the recipes aren't copyrighted. So some of the recipes that Carver included might be written by him. Some of them, he acknowledges in one of his notes that he is, he's thanks people for some of the recipes, some of the cookbooks that he's consulted for some of the recipes included. But some of them are undoubtedly his, because of, just because of the language of the recipes. He published his recipes in something called um, an Agricultural Extension Bulletin. And there were dozens published by Tuskegee. Because Tuskegee was a rarity, it was a not a white land-grant institution, a historically white institution, but it was a, a historically black institution that was, through Booker T. Washington's uh, sort of, I'd say, political genius, um, had an extension school assigned to it. So Carver believed um, in, like Booker T. Washington, in self-sufficiency and self-pride. Um, and so he saw the bulletins as a way to help secure the livelihood of the African-American farmer. But he was not only interested in telling people how to heal sweet potatoes, but also how to make them, how to make dishes with them, and not just simple dishes, but also variety of meals. He also was a, a big believer in people always having a, what we, we call now a kitchen garden um, so that... He discouraged people, whether they were sharecroppers or small farmers, from planting edge to edge in cotton um, or tobacco, but always reserving some part of their um, their holdings, even if they were rented, for um, collards, corn, maybe some chickens, so that people could be self-sufficient and not rely on the company store. This way, people would have a better uh, diet, a more nutritionally well-rounded diet, but also not end up in debt um, to the company store, to the plantation stores, which always would overcharge. so that would keep people in their you know in their bond, financial bond forever, What's called debt peonage uh, for sharecroppers. But even if you all manage to own your land, and many black folks, through, I mean unbelievable odds, did I mean African Americans own millions of acres of land? And um, when the story of how that um, had that fell apart in the 20th century has been uh, written by other people, uh, but there, of course there was a, a recognition of it, and supposedly the government is going to make restitution uh, for the, the denial of funds and support that they were that were given to white farmers. Uh, but it's too late for many farmers who've passed away or lost their land. Um, but he wanted to make the life of the African-American farmer better. And this was one of the ways he did it.
0: Yeah. So it seems like those those don't just include recipes for how to use ingredients, but recipes uh, for for respect. Will you say a little bit more about some of those instructions?
1: Yeah. Well, I, one of the things he said that I thought that was really, um, I found it moving is that he thought that, flowers, you know, and this made me think of Alice Walker's essay in search of our mother's gardens. Um, He thought that flowers could be as, um, as much of a tonic as medicine. And so he urged people to, to grow flowers as well. Um, He urged people not just to say, make a, a slice of like a sliced tomato salad or tomato, tomato soup. But at one point he says tomatoes as a crop come in such varieties, you can use them as decorations. Um, So he thought um, not just about feeding people, um, feeding people literally, but he thought about feeding people's souls. And that was something that that comes through in some of his little instructions within the recipes or in head notes or in the sort of introductory materials.
0: Uh, The next chapter kind of looks away from cookbooks towards memoirs and novels of the civil rights era. Uh, So novels from uh, Anne Moody, Alice Walker, Ernest Gaines. What's the place of those non-cookbooks alongside these other chapters with more traditional recipe texts?
1: Yeah, well, this is, you know, they are in some ways another way that, you know, one of the things I thought about with with the book was I'm looking, I wanted to look at different ways that food was a field of action. Right. So it can literally be a field, a field of action in the sense that people are using their knowledge of food to gain social status and, you know, social mobility and civil rights. Right. By becoming someone recognized as an author, you, you, people will think differently of you. Right. By becoming um, someone whose books sell, you'll have an additional income stream. So, you know, that's kind of one couple of ways that cookbooks function as a field of action writing about food or thinking about food is another way of thinking of food as a field of action. And with Moody, we've already talked about, um, the lunch counters, right? The, the denial of, you know, the rejection of people of shared foods, uh, with the dining, like something like a, a dining counter at Woolworth, but in say Ernest Gaines, it's, uh, a eld- elderly white woman, um, this is decision to share, um, this basket of neatly wrapped sandwiches to a gathering of people who are both white and black in Louisiana in a period of, you know, of, while well, we'll say so-called desegregation, right? Cause there's an, there's a, a pair of football heroes, one white and one black who are, you know, part of this large cast of characters, but it's, Generally, it's quite obvious when you read the text that the the racial status quo is still very much um, in um, effect. So when this oh, oh, this when this woman uh, Miss Merle brings around her baskets and she gives sandwiches to everyone, that's an example of food being a field of action. Right? If um, Douglas talks about um, food being uh, one, she talks about the denial of food being a ruthless, something to the effect of a ruthless twist of hospitality. Then Merle's um, offering of sandwiches to people young and old, white and black, shows that there is perhaps not the desegregation that would come around in 40 years or 50 years, um, because the book is kind of told from a couple of different standpoints. So somebody is looking back and narrating this, but that there is that possibility, right? There is the promise of it. There is movement toward that. If even though they're not sitting around the dining room table, they're standing around in the yard somewhere, but they're all getting the same food and they're eating it at the same time.
0: Yeah, so even though these books don't contain recipes for food, they do describe acts of eating or refusal to eat um, as a means of protest. So uh, even if they don't have these recipes for cooking, what are the recipes for respect in each of these texts?
1: Right. Well, the recipe for respect is what Miss Merle is doing. Um, by showing um, a white character um, sharing food, that's a field of action. Um, in, um, in um, Alice Walker's Meridian, another novel I write about, you see uh, a group, an interracial group of civil rights workers, again, during the height of the civil rights movement in Mississippi. One of the, the workers is an African-American man. He marries a white Jewish woman and with another friend, an African-American man, they go to a greasy spoon and they celebrate being served there even though the food is horrible. So it's like, yay, we, got it. we, we, we went to the moonflower and we got served. Except that there were white supremacists watching them. And so they're breaking two taboos. There's both the interracial taboo, um, the gender one, right? Miscegenation. So you have a black man with a white woman and then you have black people eating with white people. So there's a double taboo that's being broken there. Um, so you see that food, it gets as it becomes a field of action when people insist on being served and do get served, right? So in contradistinction to, to um, Ann Moody, they do get served, but by getting served, they lay themselves open to gunfire and one person ends up severely wounded by the white supremacists who take note of this and lie in wait for them on another evening.
0: Wow. Uh, So the next chapter looks at how two cookbooks uh, construct autobiographies and family histories through cookbook narratives. And that's Verda Smart Grosvenor's Vibration Cooking and Carol and Norma Jean Darden's Spoon Bread and Strawberry Wine. Um, You argue that both books are in conversation with ideas about a monolithic black cuisine and that they each have a very different agenda about how they're going to define African-American culture. Uh, so what are some of the key differences in those two books?
1: Well, they're, they're class they're, they're class and educational differences. I think they're regional differences. Um, so um, they're both, interestingly, though, the both of them grow up in the North. Um grows up in Philadelphia, and the Darden sisters grow up in suburban New Jersey. The Dardens, however... Um, go to Sarah Lawrence, and I like to think of their father as a physician, and I like to think of them as a sort of the, the sort of the avatar of the sort of the new generations who grow up going to white schools and, grow, and growing up in integrated suburbs. May's family is working class and more um, noticeably Southern, or Geechee, as she says. The travel notes of, of a Geechee girl are the subtitle. Is the subtitle of her book? And she was rather than going off as um the dardans did to college an an elite historically white college at eighteen she instead as following has been following sort of the bebop movement um and goes to paris um she decides to go to europe um she ends up falling in with a group of bohemians marries a white sculptor and um is befriended by and is friends with some of the African-American movers and shakers of the era, Um, like musicians like Sun Ra or actor uh, Raymond St. James. I mean, like Alice B. Toklas, she is a name dropper, um, and they both will name, uh, Toklas and uh, Grosvenor, Smart Grosvenor, name many of their recipes after the folk's that they have come in contact with. Um, so, you know, Toklas will refer to eggs, um, Francis Bacabia, and um, then um, Ferdinand May has the Raymond St. Jacques pancakes, which I recommend highly, by the way. I would make them in grad school. I think they are light and delicate. Uh, but um, she also was more um, oh, um, overtly centered on, Herself and and not in a bad way, but as someone who was a contemporary activist, whether she's an arts activist or a civil rights activist. And the Dardens, who are going back in time, right? They were I don't can't remember whether it was at a party or is at college, and they were where it said, "Oh, people, your family is so interesting. They must have a lot of old recipes." And they end up going to the South and very carefully recording these conversations and exchanges they had with family and family friends, and then recording the recipes very precisely Um, and I've said before, um, that it's almost as though they're providing operating instructions for the children and the products of these desegregated, integrated um, spaces, well, how to be properly black, at least in terms of cuisine. So, they um, like one point of difference is the way they uh, both, both cookbooks offer um, recipes for Hoppin' John, which is seen as a signature New Year's Day dish. Um, and, and greens are supposed to accompany them, or greens, the dollars, is, you know, you're supposed to have money in the good year, in the new year. And black eyed peas and rice are supposed to bring good luck. Now, when the Dardens give you the recipe, it's very precise. They tell you how much water to use and how many beans and how to cook the beans and what kind of spices and how to fluff the rice and the peas to, together. And Vermeer's recipe is basically four lines, like cook peas, cook rice, mix together, voila, um, in the season to taste. So she's assuming a certain um, expertise on the part of the, her readers, as opposed to the Dardans. but more importantly, she goes on to say, you know, black people have been making this dish for so many years. I think it's a new day, right? This is the late 60s. She's writing this after the sixties, after the Black Power movement, after the you know the apogee of the civil rights movement. As we're moving into Black Power, and says, and so we're not going to do that anymore. You know, we're going to do so. I'm going to do something new on New Year's Day, and that kind of. That recipe, those two approaches to the recipe, I think sum up this sort of the, uh, I think the ideological differences between the two cookbooks.
0: Yeah, agreed. That example was really powerful. Um, Yeah. So in the next chapter, when you talk about uh, Edna Lewis, you call it elegy or Sankofa. And I, I saw in that chapter, again, the mark of a literary scholar. Um, so what does it mean to compare a recipe collection to that poetic form of the elegy? Uh, and what's the difference between elegy and Sankofa?
1: Well, let's just start by definitions, rough definition of elegy. Elegies were originally poems written generally by men, right? Because male poets were the ones getting published who wrote to commemorate the death or the loss of a, of a friend generally a male friend, okay? Um, so this was a genre of poems. Um, sankofa is not a literary genre. What it is is a sign uh, that's been adopted. Uh, as a symbol, adopted by African-Americans. It's from the Akan. It's, West, it's a West African word, essentially meaning to go ahead, to move forward, you have to look back. And often the sort of the pictograph for the Sankofa bird is a bird, like, and most of the body is facing forward, but the bird's looking back, right? That you have to know your history in order to go forward. So that's kind of what I think of is going on with Edna Lewis, is that she is remembering Freetown, which was a community of former slaves in Virginia that she grew up in, that her, fa- her grandparents were founders of. Um, and she wants people to know that um, there's a certain kind of food and and I think part of this is a, I won't say it's a dig, but revealing that African-American food, foodways is not about, you know, what was became branded as soul food in the 1960s, uh, but it's something more complex and sophisticated and very, what we think of seasonal farm to fork, right? Local, hyper-local eating. uh, That's Edna Lewis. and um, the Sankofa is that she's asking people, the young people, she I think she's hoping will read her cookbook to know, to go forward, right? To go forward in terms of gastronomy, you have to know that, say, African food way, African-American food are more than just grits and greens, right? It's a, it's a much more complex, uh, sophisticated diet. At the same time, she also connects things up with the African heritage, as she does by mentioning guinea fowl, for example, right? Because those were, you know, people didn't necessarily just have chickens, they also had guinea fowls, you know, because there's the guinea fowl and things like benny seeds and okra are part of the African. We think of the Columbian exchange, where things like tomatoes and potatoes went east. Well, the African exchange would be where things like a watermelon and the sesame seeds, et cetera, would go west.
0: Yeah, and in, in the last two chapters the, with um, with Grovesner and um, the Darden sisters and in uh, this chapter with Edna Lewis, you draw a connection to Alice B. Toklas's cookbook. Um, and I was interested in the ways that, that you were working Uh, how they were talking back against the genre there. Um, What's the sort of the difference between how Toklas remembers the dead uh, or the past and how Edna Lewis
1: does? Well, yeah, that gets back to the elegy versus Sankofa. I mean, I have this chapter in recipes is a a sort of a smaller version of a longer meditation. I wrote about the two and I look at Toklas, um, Toklas's recipes. I mean, again, like, Smart Grosvenor, when she, of course, preceded either of them. Since she, The Alice B. Toklas book comes out in the in 1950s. Um, she is remembering um, the meals and the dishes and the sort of the dining events that she had with her late consort, Gert, Gertrude Stein. So it's an elegy in the sense that she is trying to remember And celebrate and memorialize a lost mate, an individual, and even a lost way of life. Because there was the life before the Second World War, and then there's the life after the Second World War. Of course, and Toklas and Stein, both being Jews, you know, that's quite a difference, right? Um, Even though they they were hidden in plain sight very successfully in the French countryside. Um, Louis is different because she is. The Sankofa is not saying this is in the past and will ever, so it will ever be. It's something that must be remembered so you can go forward. Right. When Toklas ends um, the Alice B. Toklas cookbook, it's, you know, it's on a dreary day and she's remembering the past. And, you know, like you really have a sense of an ending, right. To use that phrase that, that, that this, that things are, are gone, that they're not going to come back. Louis is writing her cookbook to bring things back, to let people know that there's this certain kind of cuisine and celebration of rural life, of community, and that people can recapture it.
0: Yeah, so your, your final chapter is about Arturo Schomburg's unfinished cookbook. Something that only exists in the archive. Um, So tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Where is it? What does what's in it? What is it like? Oh, I I, I've been fascinated
1: with that for a long time. Um, Doris Witt and uh, David Lupton's um, appendix to Doris's um, Black Hunger book first alerted me to that. In fact, it's a helpful. Start for people who are interested in seeing what black cookbooks have been out there, uh, particularly before, say, 1950. Um, And I thought, well, it's never been published. What is it? So I went to uh, I at the time was not in New York, so I wrote the Schaumburg and I asked them, you know, the old-fashioned way before email, can you, could I get a copy? How you know how many pages is it? And um, long story short, I got a copy of the typescript. Um, It's a number of pages um, of lists of recipes, um, you know, for calves brains, for ice cream, for fried chicken, for, you know, uh, beef stew, um, as well as a few pages of basically it's part memoir because he remember he recalls meals and dining events and just reflections on who was a chef who should be remembered, he mentions some names, but puzzlingly doesn't mention others. Um, so though I can read it now and you can read it now, go to the library and say, oh, this is fascinating. He's talking about early black chefs, but he doesn't seem to know who Hercules is, who's George Washington's now famous chef, or James Hemmings, who was um, a very, very well-known chef in his time also. And the brother, of course, to Jefferson's, um, I don't know, one always stumbles. What do we call Sally Harris? A consort? A concubine? It's really not clear how very complicated that, I mean, we can imagine how complicated it is, and I'm sure it was even more complicated. But he was her older brother, um, and he was employed as a slave Um, to Jefferson, and when they all went to France, when he was doing his diplomatic thing, um, he was trained in the best kitchens in Paris, became fluent in French, he spoke French and English, and came back to the United States with Jefferson. He said he wanted his freedom. Jefferson said he could have it, but on one condition, that he train another slave to take his place in the kitchen. So another Hemmings sibling, a young, uh, younger brother, was trained to take over and James was manumitted, but he never cooked in the White House. Um, and he actually died in his thirties, rather tragically, and it's not quite clear what happened to him, but he died. Um, and finding out um, what exactly was the trajectory of a chef like Hercules. Um, there's some really good stuff in, uh, Erica Dunbar, um, Armstrong's, uh, Only Judge book. Um, how do we, how do we write the biography of people who did not leave texts behind? Hemmings left maybe two or three sheets of paper, an inventory and a recipe. I think you can even see them on the Monticello website. Hercules, We don't have anything written. And it's, there's, you know, you can think of that. I think it's Augustus Jackson um, who worked in the Madison White House and is sometimes credited for inventing ice cream, though ice cream was invented before him. But he popularized a a better way of making it and even had a confectionery store at one point. Um, George Crumb, again, was said to be the Saratoga Springs chef who invented the potato chip. Um, Potato chips were undoubtedly around before him, but he's the person who put them sort of on the American map, so to speak. So they were people who, if you know something about black culinary history, um, are missing. So that made me think, how did Schomburg, who was this self-taught historian, and, the, you know, the um, collector whose new, wonderful collection of African-American historical texts, ephemera of various, like, you know, say the Cuban independence, um, like group archives and all kinds of things, statues, like Richmond Barthe statues, uh, physical objects, become the core of what is now the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture of the New York Public Library. How did he how did he uh, go about this? How could he go about this? And I think maybe some of the, maybe one of the reasons, a couple of reasons, right? Maybe one of the reasons he didn't finish it because it was something that would take such digging. He didn't have the time to do it because he was busy running the library um, or because, you know, he ran out of time because he had many projects. He died um, of something with, that would be prevented um with antibiotics today, uh, I believe an infection from dental work. Um, But uh, his research as such, I found intriguing. And I did this by finding out like who, and when he says Marcellus is ice cream, who is Marcellus? And um, Marcellus, I learned good, this is where the internet comes in handy. You start typing in strings of things, you will learn about matters. So Marcellus's ice cream is in the Bluegrass cookbook, or William Deese's recipes are in 200 Years of Charleston cookbooks. Um, So he was reverse engineering a history of Black culinary achievements by seeing and finding where African-American cooks are cited and celebrated in white-authored cookbooks, and then working backward from what he knows to try, you know, to at least sketch out what this kind of cookbook could be, but then was never finished. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he said, and you know, and he knows at the same time that these are, you know, often deeply racist depictions, right? We go back to that whole, you know, the genius, you know, the black woman genius in the cook, you know, in the kitchen, right? In Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, And you actually, the earliest, I think, that I recall is in the beginning of the 19th century with um, James Fenimore Cooper's The Spy, where the black person in the kitchen is a man named Caesar. Um, But again, so he's trying to, how do we find this information? Um, And it's not just because we can go to the library and say, okay, we're going to go to the, either the card catalog or the, you know, the the, uh, virtual catalog. And type in um, Hercules, chef of George Washington, and it'll pop up, right? That doesn't happen. So we had to work really, really hard to try to figure out, not just, I mean, this soul food was not, you know, that would be anachronistic, not just what he would call the cuisine of the, the quarters, right? He said the flavory cuisine that African-Americans, you know, left to their own devices might like but also the cuisine. He knew the fantastic, highly articulated cuisine that African-American chefs were creating for their white so-called owners or employers.
0: Yeah. So just as a way to, to wrap up our conversation, uh, one thing that I appreciated about your book was that there's a lot of chapters, but they're so compact. They seem kind of perfectly packaged for assigning to undergrad students. Um, so I teach a class on the literary cookbook and I assign sometimes cookbooks in my more traditional literature classes. Um, is this material that you regularly get to teach and how do you kind of, how do you prepare students to read cookbooks when most of them really haven't had a lot of exposure to them maybe?
1: Yeah, well, I, I give them, you know, secondary source readings, right? So, you know, I, hopefully my book, my some of my chapters, uh, which I tried to make actually, I was working on making it lean and mean. This book, so I'm, I'm tickled that, that that it's been recognized as such. Um, I don't necessarily teach a lot of cookbooks, but I teach food and liter- uh, food and American literature classes. So I might teach a cookbook like Vermae Smart Grosvenor's uh, Vibration Cooking because it's both a cookbook, very obviously a cookbook, and a memoir. I uh, will uh, we'll include um, Coming of Age of Mississippi um, because it is a memoir about the civil rights movement, which is so much about food and largely about f- what we now call food insecurity and food injustice. Um, they can read a well if in that course I used America largely. So we also read, you know, like Water for Chocolate by Laura Esquivel as well. So in a literature class, there are fewer cookbooks as such. I might use uh, Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo by Ntozaki Shange. And there are always new books like uh, Monique Tuang's, um book that's a reimagining, the Book of Salt. It's called A Reimagining of the Stereotyped, quote-unquote, Chinese Chef that Toklas refers to in her cookbook, right? He's actually... Vietnamese, but she's constantly referring to him as Chinese, um, right? This sort of flattening, like this sort of Asian and Monique, how Monique Truong takes back that sort of brief stereotype. And she embodies that character with a, a, a rich interior and exterior life. It's a lovely book. Um, in my most recent book uh, on African-American foodways, we, looked at uh, community cookbooks, we looked at, um, I had them um, look at the, the National Council of Negro Women's Historical Cookbook from 1958 and see um, different ways that people can compile a cookbook because that's very much a history uh, that's sort of bedecked with recipes, right? And it goes not by breakfast, lunch, dinner, desserts, drinks, but by the month, so that January, of course, will start out with Hop and John, but other months might celebrate somebody's birthday, right? February, you could have something um, to say about Frederick, Frederick Douglass, because February 14th is the day he celebrates sub- celebrated his birthday. Um, but we also then begin that class with readings from folks like um, Judith Carney um, who's, and Nicholas they're in The Shadow of Slavery, which is their their um, study of African-American diasporic foodways coming from the continent to the United States and the Caribbean and Latin America.
0: That sounds fascinating. Uh, so we've been talking today with Rafia Zoffer about her new book, Recipes for Respect, African-American Meals and Meaning from the University of Georgia Press. Thank you, Rafia, for talking with us today. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you very much. I was delighted to be invited to talk about one of my favorite subjects.